0: Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is David Keefe, a professor at the Harvard School of Engineering and Applied Sciences, and at the Harvard Kennedy School and founder of Carbon Engineering, a Canadian company developing technology to capture CO2 from ambient air. David's worked near the interface between climate science, energy technology, and public policy for 25 years. He's best known for his work on the science, technology, and public policy of solar geoengineering. He led the development of Harvard's solar geoengineering research program. David also took first prize in Canada's National Physics Prize exam, won MIT's Prize for Excellence in Experimental Physics, and was one of Time Magazine's Heroes of the Environment. We have a long-form discussion in this episode where we take a deep dive into solar geoengineering research, why it matters, some of the inherent risks, how they can be overcome, the state of that research today, where it needs to go and if you feel so inclined, how you might be able to help. David Keith, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot. Great to be here. I'm glad we're finally making this happen. Uh, you were one of the first people I reached out to a year ago on my climate journey, and you got right back to me when I emailed you cold and gave me some book recommendations, and that started, I guess at this point, we've met three or four times, so, but never with the mics on.
1: So I want to know what the books were and how much I, how much I misled you. What, what books? Do you remember?
0: I want to say, because there were a few that I read on the topic, but one of them I think was Planet Remade.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oliver's book, which I think is just terrific.
0: Yeah, and I feel like there was another one as well, but I'm blanking on the name.
1: I'll have to dig it up and put it in the show notes. I often give people smeal books if they're interested in energy.
0: You didn't, but I did. I've got one sitting there that I've been meaning to read. That is a hard one to to get as a non scientist. That's an intimidating one to to crack open. Seems pretty Uh thick.
1: They're, yeah so they're thick and thin smeal books actually I've just been I've been reading one just to get off on a, maybe a bit of a tangent a lot of people think that technology is changing much faster now than it did and so you know I teach technology policy at the Kennedy school and I have to struggle with this and I don't think it is or if it is you got to really define what measures speed and why and one of my absolutely favorite smeal books is about this age of synergy this age of very rapid technological change from like the Late like 1860 roughly till the First World War where just so many of the major technologies that shaped the last century were invented. And I've been actually rereading it to teach from it and to get young students to realize that technological change is not as, uh, not just about iPhones and not as new as they think. And it's
0: been really fun. So maybe for some forced accountability, I'm not allowed to meet with you again until I've read that book, so. Read some spiel energy books anyway, but yeah. All right. So I'm super excited to to dig into the topic of solar geoengineering today. You are one of the most knowledgeable people out there on the topic, and it's a very important one. So maybe let's just jump right in. What is solar geoengineering?
1: So solar geoengineering, which goes by a bunch of other names, you'd call it climate intervention or solar radiation management or solar radiation modification. I'll go with solar geo, but I don't really care much. It's the idea that humans might deliberately alter the Earth's radiative forcing to offset some of the risks of accumulated greenhouse gases. So let me step back. So radiative forcing is just a technical word that people use in the climate science for world for how much we're pushing on the climate. So it's, I'll at least start with one geeky term, which is watts per square meter, which is a measure of how much in total humans are pushing on the climate. So two times CO2 is about four watts per square meter. That's the instantaneous amount that human actions, greenhouse gases and other things are putting the radiative balance of the earth out of balance and causing the climate change. So that probably sounded pretty theoretical. Let me give you some examples about how it might be done. So Most examples involve aerosols. So, for example, it'd be possible to add to the aerosol burden in the stratosphere. So what's an aerosol? It's just a small particle of a liquid or a solid, like a dust, that is simply so small it doesn't fall down rapidly. So, you know, a cannonball, you could argue is an aerosol, but it falls out of the atmosphere right away. Aerosols are suspended just because they gravitationally settle slowly. And they are also very, very effective at scattering light. It turns out the optimal size of a thing to scatter light per unit of weight the thing that that is it'll scatter the most light per unit weight is something that has a size about the wavelength of light. So aerosols of order a micron or half a micron in size are the things that are most effective at scattering light. So aerosols in the upper atmosphere can scatter light back to space, and that reduces the total amount of sunlight that the earth absorbs, and that is a negative radiative forcing that will offset some of the positive radiative forcing from greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide. So Now to go to all the different ways you might do solar chamber sharing, there's aerosols in the stratosphere of different kinds. There's ideas of modifying high cirrus clouds. Cirrus clouds, it turns out, are warming clouds because they have a kind of infrared heat trapping effect that's bigger than their sunlight scattering effect or generally do. And so there's ways that we might be able to reduce the density of those cirrus clouds in some locations, and that could be a quite effective way to lever for modifying the, the radio forcing. Then there's also ideas for increasing low-lying clouds, particularly kind of marine stratus cloud, which only occurs in some parts of the world. But it might be possible that by adding more aerosols to those clouds, you could make them a little wider or live a little bit longer. So that was kind of starting in stratosphere and going down. Now if I start in the stratosphere and go up, the other possibility is that you could build big structures in space in principle, build a, a structure at the L1 point in between the Earth and the sun. So that's kind of a very quick run through of the technical methods by which solar geometry might be done. And to go a little further on technical methods, I would say the method at which there is the highest level of technical confidence that in some crude way it is doable and doable with essentially commercial off-the-shelf technology and doable cheaply is to put sulfuric acid or sulfate aerosols into the stratosphere. That's a thing that I think there's a, really enough knowledge that we can say with very high confidence that could be done to produce, say, two watts per square meter of radio forcing, offsetting half of so, CO2-driven warming effect. And that could be done quite easily in pure technical terms. That's not making any claims about how useful it is or how risky it is, but just the sort of raw ability to do it. Whereas some of the others, it's much less clear that they could actually be done at scale and produce significant radio forcing which is not a reason not to look much harder because some of them have advantages and and disadvantages, but they're different kinds of things.
0: Got it. So is it basically blocking out the sun to mask some of the symptoms that come with increasing carbon in the atmosphere?
1: Yeah, I think that's a useful way to think about it. I certainly think that it's, I mean, if you want to get into analogies, think about it as a Band-Aid or or, chemotherapy for cancer or so on are common analogies that we use. So to go a little deeper technically now, the reason co2 and other long-lived gases greenhouse gases heat the climate is they make it relatively harder for the climate to radiate away infrared light to space mm-hmm. and so that the temperature is sort of balanced or the earth's climate is balanced by how much light it absorbs from the sun and all the energy it absorbs from the sun it has to radiate back to space in infrared and that radiative the actual balance uh, will always stay roughly in balance but if you make it harder to radiate away sunlight for a given temperature, then the temperature has to come up to come back in equilibrium. So if you add CO2 to the atmosphere, that means that at a given surface temperature, there's a little less what we call outgoing long-wave radiation, a little less of this infrared radiation going out to space. And so then the Earth needs to go to a higher temperature to bring itself back into energy balance. And the idea is that by reducing the sunlight input a little bit, you could bring the Earth a little closer back to the original climate, closer to little, its original radiative balance. And that actually gets at one of the basic limits to solar geoengineering. So the biggest thing to say is solar geoengineering is not anti-CO2. There is nothing that you could do with solar geoengineering that completely undoes all the climate risks that come from carbon dioxide. Partly that's because some of the climate risks that come from carbon dioxide aren't about climate. They're about the Chemistry of carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is a weak acid, carbonic acid, and it, you know, as you your listeners all know, it acidifies the ocean. And that direct effect of carbon dioxide basically depends on the amount of CO two in the atmosphere, and it's more or less unaffected by what you do with with solar geoengineering. But even in the story I just told, with carbon dioxide making it harder for infrared light to get out, that turns out to happen kind of in the middle of the atmosphere, maybe five kilometers over our heads. This is where a lot of the infrared light gets out and and goes back to space. Whereas sunlight is basically mostly absorbed at the surface. So sunlight is scattered by clouds, but the sunlight that actually is absorbed, that heats the earth, mostly is absorbed at the surface. So it's funny, even though the sun is above us, when you teach a climate class, you teach people that it's actually quite useful to think about the earth system as being heated from below, because that's where the sun is absorbed. So that means that if you warm up the climate with, say, doubling CO2, and then you cooled it back down to the same original global average temperature by solar geoengineering, which is, is certainly physically possible, you do not get back to the same climate. And in particular, in that scenario, the precipitation, the total amount of the hydrological cycle, a total amount of evaporation of water and precipitation of water, which have to balance, those two have to go down. It turns out they go down more than the temperature goes down. So if you bring temperatures back to their original equilibrium point, you have to have precip down. Actually, that's only true if you assume you have to reflect away sunlight in a spectrally broad way, so you're reflecting about the same amount of sunlight at every spectral band. There's actually a mostly theoretical possibility, but it is true in principle that if you had scatters that were spectrally selective and they reflected just in the near-infrared in some wavelengths that are actually absorbed in the atmosphere and don't make it to the surface, then that doesn't have that same problem. And then you can actually in principle, get both temperature and precipitation back closer to pre-industrial.
0: And so when solar geoengineering is deployed, how concentrated can it be versus, like, do you deploy it once and it goes horizontally across the earth, or is it in a very concentrated geography? How does that work? So I think you really need to divide this up into two
1: completely different things. One is about how we make the radiative forcing by one of those methods I said, Mm -hmm. and some of the choices about how dispersed it is, is a human choice. It's not a, a fact of nature, or it's a mixture of human choice and fact of nature. And then there's a question of what is the climate response to that radiative forcing? So I'd say the following. It is certainly theoretically possible, and for some methods it's easier or harder, to make radiative forcing in a limited area. So, for example, with, say, the cirrus thinning idea— the aerosols that would alter the cirrus clouds if it, if it works at all, and it's only going to work in some particular cirrus clouds, but you could certainly limit that to a pretty confined geographical area, you know, say a thousand kilometer circle. And likewise, these ideas of marine cloud brightening, of these certain kind of stratus clouds, if you're in the right area, you could do that in a way that was a quite limited location. And likewise, In principle, there are space-based systems, low-Earth orbit space-based systems, I think, that are not very practical that would allow you to do the radiative forcing only in one place. But, and there's a huge but, if you do radiative forcing in one place, that is theoretically possible, but it is impossible to only affect the climate in that place because climate is all interconnected by flows of, of heat and momentum. I should say, if it was really possible for each region to just technologically change its own climate then the politics would be easy because there wouldn't be any international conflict. Each country could just set its climate knob. But that is definitely not possible. It's sort of deep in the climate that we only live on one planet and that the climate system is interconnected. So while it is possible, not necessarily easy, to, with some of these methods, have the radiative forcing be more local, if you make it more local, there will definitely be non-local effects. We call these teleconnections in the climate world, where if you make a change someplace, you'll get through the sort of way weather systems work, you'll get some corresponding change somewhere else. So long story, but my view to jump a little bit to the politics of this is that if you're looking for solar geoengineering that has the best chance of providing the largest global benefits of reduced climate risks with the minimum harms and the minimum extent to which any place is worse off, it's likely that you do not want to use one of these localized methods, and that you want to do something that provides a pretty uniform radiative forcing, where you have about the same radio forcing north to south and east to west over the whole world. And I think there's pretty strong reasons to believe that doing that has the best chance or, or is near the best chance of reducing climate change in a way that's pretty uniform and doesn't or does the minimum to leave any region worse off.
0: How does one test solar geoengineering in terms of like what are the steps to go from a concept to actually something that feels like it it could be ready to deploy, and where are we with that research today?
1: Yeah, so that, that's sort of getting the core of it. So I'll try that in a couple different ways. Maybe what I'll first do is tell you a little bit about what I think is kind of known and not known today, and then say a little bit about where research is happening and how much research funding there is and why, and then we can go from there. So this topic has been, for reasons that we can get into, kind of a taboo, where there has been very little research in total until maybe recently. So while the idea isn't new, the idea appeared in the climate reports of the 1965 and 77 and the early 80s NAS report. So the topic was woven into all the early work about climate, and many of the things we work on aren't remotely new. It's not a new innovation. There's been very little systematic research about how it might be done and about how what it's what I call the efficacy would be, that is how much it actually reduces climate risk we care about, and also very little understood about what the risks would be. So now fast forward to now, while there has been a taboo, there's been more research. There's sort of about a 1,000 papers published, actually you know, roughly half of them sort of social science, roughly half climate science, a lot of them just taking kind of generic climate models and applying them. But here's some of what I think we know. I think that for aerosols in the stratosphere, I think that there is reason to believe, pretty strong reasons to believe, that if you put aerosols, say sulfates or other aerosols in the stratosphere, you could adjust the amount that you put in with feedback. So you'd observe how the aerosol distribution was and adjust where you were putting it in based on your observation of where it is. That if you do that, it wouldn't be too hard to produce a pretty uniform radiative forcing. The stratosphere naturally has this long, slow, two-year circulation. So any material that you put up there lasts for roughly two years, very round numbers. And mostly what you do is you inject in the tropics, roughly between plus and minus 30 degrees, 30 degrees at north and south latitude. You actually only have to do that at one longitude. So you could do it in principle, essentially, from a single set of airfields near the tropics. And then the material spreads pretty evenly globally. You need to do a little bit of tuning. And I think the evidence that you could get something that was quite uniform, meaning that the differences in, say, a 10-degree zonal band might be no more than kind of 10%, I think the evidence for that is pretty strong. That's doable in principle. And that you could do that. Let's just take a benchmark case. Let's say you want to do 2 watts per square meter. I'll come later and defend that benchmark. But let me, for the next while, assume that you want to do this 2 watts per square meter benchmark. If you want to do it with sulfur, that would take something of order a million and a half or two million tons a year of sulfur in the stratosphere. So let's say a little bit about how that could be done physically and what its risks would be. And then we'll talk about what the what we know about what the benefits would be. So that could be done with not existing aircraft, or there's ways to do it not very effectively with existing aircraft, but best done with new aircraft, but new aircraft that aren't particularly hard to build. They're new aircraft that are built with... Existing engine technologies and existing airframe building technologies, and lots of different airframe makers can make these things, and maybe aircraft that would have, you know, roughly a 10-ton payload and fly to roughly 20 kilometers, sort of 65,000 feet kind of level. And I think the evidence that you could move that much material to the stratosphere at reasonable well, reasonable is a value judgment, but the costs are of order a a couple dollars a kilogram. So then you're looking at sort of total costs when you you do the overall amortized cost of the program as a few billion dollars a year kind of category to put that much material in the stratosphere. So let's assume it's sulfur for now. There are probably a lot better ideas we can get to, but, but just for sulfur, we are talking about putting a million and a half tons of sulfur as sulfuric acid in the stratosphere. So your obvious reaction should be, what? That's crazy. So it's important to think a little bit about the risks. So here's some numbers to help give that some perspective. A moderate big but not by any means monstrous volcano like Pinatubo in 91 put 8 million tons in a single year. We have lots of observations from that. We know lots of it. Models got calibrated. Models of stratospheric circulation and climate response. So we're talking about something that's a lot less than that each year, so maybe less than a quarter of that per year. Right now in the lower atmosphere, humans put about 50 million tons of sulfur into the atmosphere as pollution from fossil fuels. And that kills several million people a year globally or air pollution through particulates to do. So we actually, I mean, for for bad reasons, we know a huge amount about the science of sulfuric acid aerosols in the atmosphere. And we absolutely know that they're harmful, but we know that the good side is we know a lot about it and exactly how harmful they are. We and some others have now done some research to understand what the health impacts would be of putting a million and a half tons a year in the stratosphere. And of course, everything you put in the stratosphere has to come down, so it will eventually rain out. But it turns out that it mostly rains out. So most of it does not make it as aerosol into the lower atmosphere where we live to be breathed in. And it's also evenly distributed, whereas the current sulfur emissions mostly are, of course, in industrial places where people live. There's just a correlation between the sulfur emissions and humanity. So here's a, maybe a useful thing to say. The ratio of the radio forcing, the cooling benefit per ton of, say, sulfur in to the health impacts you get about a 1,000 times more cooling per unit health impacts if you put material in the stratosphere than if you put it with a current distribution of sources. So maybe what I didn't say is, well, solar geoengineering is the idea of people deliberately modifying the climate. People are modifying the climate. Most obviously, by putting CO2 in the atmosphere, but we are also modifying the climate by putting aerosols in the form of pollution in the atmosphere, and those are currently reflecting away some sunlight and cooling the planet by an amount that's actually quite uncertain. That has actually an important consequence that might surprise some of your listeners. If you stopped all industrial activity tomorrow, most people's assumption is that it would get cooler in 10 years because you've stopped putting the CO2 in the atmosphere. Everybody knows that it lasts a long time, but that's in fact wrong because the industrial activity is doing two things. It's adding to these long-lived greenhouse gases like CO2 that basically produce this long cumulative warming, but there's this short-term effect of cooling And that cooling effect only lasts for about two weeks. Uh, That is, the aerosols last for about two weeks. So if you shut off all industrial activity, you'd be removing that mask, that veil, that is blocking some of the warming. You'd be unmasking some of the underlying warming from our CO2, and the world actually warms up if you stop everything. So that was a long digression to say we are already modifying the climate through those methods. That's not a justification to say it's morally okay to do it deliberately, because deliberate is different from as a side effect, but we're already doing that. And to give you this quantitative number, that if you wanted to use sulfur aerosols to cool the climate in the stratosphere, you have about 1,000 times less direct health impacts per unit cooling than than from the current distribution of sulfur aerosols. So that's a kind of long story about what it might mean to do two watts per square meter of radiative forcing sulfate aerosols. And the basic summary I would say is that the cost is tiny, which doesn't say it's a good idea. It just means it's It's a fact. In some ways, it's a bug because it allows unilateral action. So more than a, more a bug than a feature, perhaps. I think there's very high confidence that it could be done. Not that it's a good idea, but that it technically is doable with existing technologies. And I think there's not as high confidence, but pretty high confidence, at least among the community of those of us who looked at it, but maybe there's group think, that you could get this pretty even radiative forcing by adjusting things. So then let's turn to the question of what that radiative forcing does to reduce climate changes. Does that make sense? Yes. So this depends on climate models, and it depends, everything I'm about to say has uncertainties that are essentially very similar to the uncertainties in predicting the climate change from CO2, which are still deep. So... From a climate model's perspective, the uncertainty in predicting response to radiative forcing from a pretty spatially uniform solar geoengineering is actually kind of similar to the uncertainty in predicting response to CO2. So every single model that I'm aware of that has tried, and it's sort of like 12 or more climate models, that has tried a scenario like I'm saying, where you use solar geoengineering enough to divide the radiative forcing in half. And to be clear, I think the relevant policy thing is not actually dividing in half, it's stopping it rising. So the point is we've got rising radio forcing for more and more CO2 in the atmosphere. And at least the way I think it would make sense to use solar geoengineering is to gradually, gradually ramp it up, starting very slowly, and ramp it up to, say, divide that rate of change in half as we gradually stop emissions and then gradually bring things down by carbon removal. Mm -hmm. So when I say divide in half. I really mean divide the change in half. I think it's unlikely you actually want to cool the world. I think you like probably want to stop it warming or cut that rate of warming in half. So thinking about that, but for now thinking about just what we know about what happens if you cut the radiative forcing roughly in half using methods, I think we know that many of the key climate hazards, including water availability, so that's precipitation minus evaporation, extreme storms, especially tropical cyclones, peak temperatures, and obviously average temperatures, and sea level rise, that for all those variables, those core climate hazards, there's evidence that doing this would tend to drive them closer to pre-industrial. So if a more risky world is further from pre-industrial, so for example, climate change, a classic thing we know is it tends to make the dry regions drier and the wet regions wetter, and it turns out that solar geoengineering looks like it neatly reverses that. So it tends to make the regions that were getting wetter get a little drier, which reduces the risk, because it's getting them back towards pre-industrial and vice versa. And to the extent that we've looked at this carefully, it looks like that's true without any big regions getting worse off. That may actually not be true in the real world, but from kind of some state-of-the-art models, the best climate models we have, if you look at large regions, none of those large regions are made worse off by doing this. That may not be what actually happens, but if there's a single reason, in my view, to take this seriously, that's it. Because what it suggests is that these methods, when used in combination with emissions cuts, could actually reduce some of the core climate hazards by roughly a factor of two over this century, which is a giant human and ecological benefit.
0: So how does one go about testing this in a way that can get you confidence that if it is rolled out globally like this, that it will do what you think. And then a, a follow-up to that is if for some reason it didn't, how easy or possible is it to unwind?
1: Those are two good questions. Let me try and, the second one first, because it's the easiest. So if you're talking about stratospheric aerosols, they last for about two years. And if you were doing it by wrapping them up slowly, you'd be starting very slowly And so unwinding at the beginning is really easy because there isn't very much there. Obviously, if you do it over the whole century, and there's some point in the middle where you have maybe two watts per square meter radio forcing, unwinding that suddenly has more consequences. We can talk about that. It's often called the termination shock. But let me come back to research. I think the answer is that, as I said before, there are two different kinds of scientific questions with linked uncertainties. One is a question of how we actually technically go about making these radio forcing, And there are questions involving aerosol dynamics and stratospheric circulation or the dynamics of these clouds, cirrus clouds, whether they're homogeneously or heterogeneous nucleated. There's a whole bunch of technical questions that are about how you make the forcing and the specific risks that come from any specific way you make the forcing. And those questions all depend on Uh all, but significantly depend on things that are testable at small scale. Because they're basically about, say, the way individual clouds react to some perturbation or the way aerosols in a plume in a stratosphere react. And that you could test by a whole series of experiments, some involving actually releasing materials, some just involving normal climate science without releasing materials. There's a whole network of tests you could do building on a century of climate and aerosol science that would improve our understanding of that. The second part of it is the uncertainty about what the large-scale climate response is to the aerosol radio forcing. And there's a sense in which that can never be tested. So, Because we only have one century we're going to live through, and there's going to be one actual radio forcing trajectory for that century that is a combination of long-lived greenhouse gases and whatever we do to, depending on when we bring emissions to zero and what we do to reduce, to, to do carbon removal afterwards, and then whatever aerosol burden there is, both the actual aerosols that we have from pollution plus any additional solar geoengineering there's only one version of that that actually will happen and the uncertainties in predicting how the climate might be different if we have different amounts of co2 or different amounts of polluting aerosols or different amounts of solar geoengineering aerosols those uncertainties are pretty linked and they are correlated if you like and so i think there's there's nothing there's no experiment you can do that will that will tell you anything new about that
0: And how much do you worry if we were to deploy it at scale that it would have some unintended consequences that haven't properly been factored in, predicted, or accounted for?
1: It's 100% certain that we'll have some unintended consequences that aren't intended or predicted for. That's true of any big thing like this. Anything that humans have ever done that's an intervention at scale has unintended consequences. So if you're looking for a consequence-free world, this is not it. But I think that's a ridiculous question. Well, it's intuitively a right question because we should worry about consequences. But but if the implicit idea is it should be that the right number of consequences should be zero, the answer is there's no consequence-free choices here for anything, including cutting CO2 emissions, because we do have to cut emissions, but cutting emissions involves transitions to low-carbon energy, which themselves have social and environmental impacts. That's not an argument that we shouldn't cut. We must cut emissions to zero, but the ways we do it have big social and environmental trade-offs and risks. Carbon removal, same. There's no risk-free outcome. This is a risk-to-risk decision. And I think, at least the way I think about it, is that let's say we have this magic day where we have global celebrations where net emissions come to zero. And I think I expect to see that day in my lifetime. I certainly don't expect to see it in 20 years, but I think seeing it soon after mid-century seems pretty realistic to me. So let's say we get to this point where net emissions are zero. That's more or less the point where carbon concentrations, the amount of carbon in the atmosphere peaks, and more or less is the point where climate risk peaks, not exactly. So at that point, you can ask yourself, which world is more dangerous? So let's say that at that point, you have a total of whatever the number is, maybe it's 450 ppm, you name it, nobody knows, but some number like that or a little bit higher. And radio forcing terms, let's say it's five watts per square meter at the peak. The question is, which world is more dangerous? A world with that 5 watts per square meter, given what we actually did to cut emissions and start carbon removal, or a world with 5 watts per square meter from the longer greenhouse gases and minus 1 or minus 2 from solar geoengineering? Both worlds have risks. Both worlds have risks we can't predict that well, because remember, we do not know. Climate models are still quite uncertain about predicting the impacts of of that that high CO2 world. And they'll be uncertain about predicting the impacts of the high CO2 world with solar geoengineering. I think there are actually strong reasons to believe that overall the risks and the uncertainty in the risks mostly scale with the net radiative forcing. So, that is a world with, let's say, to be specific, five watts per square meter of greenhouse yeah. gases, CO2, both is a more risky world and, in some ways, a world where the uncertainty about the risks is bigger than a world with, say, four watts per square meter, that is the five watts minus one. But both worlds are unser- uncertain and for sure there will be unexpected consequences.
0: Now, where are you in terms of your knowledge and conviction level as far as there's solar geoengineering research, and then there's solar geoengineering deployment? Where are you in terms of what you believe is the right path? And I have a follow-up, but I'm going to stop there.
1: That's another really, really good question. I would be dead set against deployment now, or I'd say anytime, and let's say the next decade. I think that there is I think the actual technical evidence that these methods, if used in certain special ways, and that's especially if you have tri-spatially uniform and moderate, that is not trying to offset all the doubled CO2 radiative forcing, I think there's actually very strong evidence that that could substantially reduce many of the key climate risks we care about. But I don't think that evidence is in any way strong enough to warrant deployment now. And moreover, I think there's a real danger of groupthink. There's a very relatively small number of people who've looked at this, thousands, but still the core groups are not very many. And it might be that there's some way in which we're just wrong. And it's also true that even if we're correct, there's no reason that the larger world should trust us. So my view is that from here to a place where you could make credible decisions about deployment, you need a much broader research effort, broader in terms of having many more climate scientists involved, many more climate scientists involved around the world because part of this is representational. People from different parts of the world have legitimately different points of view and you need to hear those and they need to be involved in the science and shaping what science has done. And it needs to be technically deeper. There's lots of communities, like parts of the stratospheric science community that are crucial for understanding geoengineering the stratosphere that have hardly been engaged. So my view is you'd want to have this Kind of embedded in the mainstream of climate and atmospheric science with total spending of order several, let's say 5% of total spending on climate and atmospheric science designed to understand this. And then also, I think it's structurally important this not all be in one program, not that it's going to be, but I think one program inevitably tries to produce one answer. There's all sorts of means of groupthink. So my view is it's good to have some different groups around the world whose job it is to try and figure out, in a sense, what is a realistic pathway to safe deployment and articulate exactly what would be done technically and why, and many more groups trying to think of what will go wrong and what the risks of that are. And only after there's a larger research effort like that would it make sense to actually be in position to to make deployment decisions. So my view is that's at least a decade out, but it is imperative that we get that research going because whatever my view is, I'm not the one making the decision, and neither are you, and neither are your listeners. And the reality is within the next couple decades, it's quite plausible that some country is going to feel enough climate risk that it's going to want to push this onto the international stage, maybe by actually deploying, or maybe by just taking steps that are close to deployment that drive it onto the international agenda. And then we're going to make decisions in a crisis. And I think it's far better if, when that day comes, there's much more knowledge, both technical knowledge and also discussions about how we got
0: How hard is it to deploy? It could I mean, could some street gang get an airplane and go rogue and do this in a small country without a lot of regulation? And also, how noticeable would it be? Like, would we absolutely know if somebody was doing it, or is it possible that it could fly under the radar for some period of time? Those
1: are those are both good questions.
0: I mean, street gangs,
1: I'm I'm not too worried about, but So there are different methods, as I said, and some methods that may not be thought about yet may be even easier. But if you talk about the stratospheric aerosols with with either – we've talked about sulfur, but there's ideas of calcium carbonate or other things. we are talking about stratospheric aerosols where you need an aircraft that can reach this upper stratosphere. Then I think the answer is let's talk about the aircraft. So these – the correct aircraft, aircraft that are optimal, you need to develop fresh. There are a huge number of aircraft developers that could do that. I mean, so we've now begun to really talk to some of them, and I think we have a sense that this is not hard. So Hindustani Aerospace or Embraer or, you know, there's a long, there's probably a list of like 30 companies that could happily do this. So if government comes to them and says, we want this, deliver us these aircraft, you know, work out a contract, and we could haggle about the contract, but the fundamental ability to do it wouldn't be hard. For that matter, That's only to get aircraft to get to this optimal height where everything is most optimal. But you don't need to get that high. If you just want to get materials in the stratosphere to begin in kind of demo mode to do this, you can do it with modified existing aircraft for sure, because you could do it meaningfully at like 45,000 feet if you do it at the mid latitude more. And then there's a bunch of range in between. So you could start relatively easily. So the capital cost so it depends on what start means. If you were starting a serious plan where you, the idea was to ramp up global radiative forcing in a way that I've sort of supposed would be to cut the rate of radio, for, the net rate of radio forcing in half. If you want to do that, the capital cost of just building up the aircraft fleet, all the tooling and development costs, people have estimated it's a few billion dollars. And then the amortized cost would be, you know, kind of billion a year after that. But on the other hand, you could probably do something, if, if you were a country and you wanted to make a statement, you said, that for whatever reason you believed it was really in your country's interest to begin this, arguably you could begin it quite a lot cheaper, you know, or order more like 100 million to just develop some a smaller fleet of modified aircraft, maybe just a few aircraft, that would at least kind of allow you to make a claim about starting deployment even if you weren't doing anything that was that meaningful. So the answer is that's within the capability of not every government in the world, but a lot of them. I don't think street gangs are meaningfully an issue. I think this happens through governments, and I think private organizations, be they international environmental groups, because after all, we've got, you know, a world where environmental defense is flying its own satellite. And I think environmental groups, my view is I, I hope they're the ones that actually do substantially kind of own this and help to set the international agenda for what happens. And I think international NGOs could be very profoundly important in shaping what happens. But I still think in the end, this probably actually gets done by a set of nations. And the question is, what configuration, what set of nations do it? And we go a little further to politics. People, I think, often fixate on two polls, and neither of them is likely. So one poll is the poll that's a full UN resolution through the, say, Framework Convention on Climate Change unanimous resolution. I think it's actually very important that we keep developing these international Mechanisms, And I want to come back to the fact that some of this is happening now through a guy called Janos Pasture. But I think the chance of those mechanisms actually getting to some kind of near global consensus for some kind of step-by-step deployment is very low. The other poll is the idea that one nation just does it. I think that probably is actually also very low because this is an interconnected world and there are lots of checks and balances. And if you imagine yourself sitting in the corridors of power of that nation, and let's say you've got like legitimate reasons that you want to do it, your scientists convince you it really will reduce climate risks a lot and you've just had some huge flooding or heat wave. Still, if you assume that you're self-interested, that is you just think about your nation, but you're smart, why would you just do it unilaterally? Because that's very likely they're going to produce blowback. What you're going to do is look for some like-minded nations and negotiate and come up with a small group of nations to do it together. So I think that's actually a much more likely case.
0: I heard a talk you gave maybe it was a year ago where you said there was about two million in total funding going towards solar geoengineering research. And then before we started recording today, I think you told me that number was t- ten million. So I guess where is that funding primarily coming from today? Where does it need to be coming from looking forward? And also, you mentioned there's a lot more research we need to do. How do you how do you quantify? So we have, and it's publicly available, you can provide a link to your to your readers.
1: We've done a job, I mean, not necessarily correctly, but we we tried to ask the organizations we knew about what their budgets were and provide data. So we have a, some data that, that shows the answer and divides it up by time and region. We think that there's roughly 10 million a year of everything. And that's, by the way, lots of that's not research. So a big chunk of that, for example, is this guy, Janos Pastors, C2G, Carnegie Governance Initiative, Climate Governance Initiative, which which is really about governance of these technologies. But the total, we think, is about 10 million. And there are research efforts in China, India, a significant one in Australia, Germany, and here. I mean, there are a few more, but that's just some I rattled off. Uh, And actually now, through a a program called Decimals that Andy Parker has helped to drive out of environmental defense, there's funding for a bunch of developing country people. So Brazil, South Africa, Ghana, yeah, several others. So there's people in some of the most affected countries now doing research. So that's about the scale of it now. And that funding is pretty heterogeneous if you look at it globally. I count roughly half government. Our program at Harvard is all, or almost all, not quite all, philanthropic funding, Janusz's thing is all or almost all philanthropic, I think, but there are government programs like the Australian and Indian and Chinese ones are government. So it's a mixture. So that's roughly the current state. And I think the answer is if you really wanted to get to a place where credible decisions could be made about deployment, if you wanted to do the kinds of work that need to be done, which is not just running existing climate models but making specific modifications that we now know about, to address specific problems in those models and making specific observations that we can now, I think, begin to have an idea of what they look like. If you want to do all that and do it over a timescale of a decade, I think you need a funding that, as I said, is sort of more like 5%-ish of overall climate science. And so in the US, the so-called Global Change Research Budget is about $2.7 billion. That's including climate science of all different kinds and related sciences and the NASA satellite programs and so on. So I think you need to be at some level that's of order 5%-ish of that. So kind of 100 million a year, a category, or maybe a few times that globally.
0: I think what I've been hearing from you is that as the PPM, as you said, continues to grow, and at some point we'll hit peak PPM and net zero, and then we'll start working our way in the other direction, and that that should hopefully occur in your, you know, an hour lifetime, although not necessarily soon. What I'm hearing is it sounds like this could be an important tool as kind of a a stopgap to minimize the symptoms while we're working through that transition. And then ultimately, would you see this phased out? Or is it something that once we start, we would do in perpetuity?
1: I think it's only ethical to even contemplate beginning doing this if you have some reasonably clear idea of how you stop. And at least the way I personally, you know, as a voter, not, I'm not saying there's some objective right answer. I only think about it as a temporary thing. Yeah, to pull that out a little bit, I think stopgap includes there's kind of one right answer. And I think that gets back to like, what is the root cause? And is the root cause CO2 emissions or capitalism or a number of things? What I think you can say in what to me is more objective language is that, first of all, if we don't stop emissions in the very long run, we truly are done. I mean, I don't think it's that useful to talk about climate being an existential threat in the near term. But if we really did emissions forever for thousands of years without stopping, you are an existential threat territory.
0: Which is different than 12 years. Which is what you hear in the media. Correct. But I think, make no mistake, if we
1: do not decarbonize the economy None of this other stuff will save you. You must decarbonize the economy. You must bring that emissions down towards zero. And if I think about the larger, what are the tools for managing the climate problem, the climate crisis, I'd say the central tool is decarbonizing the economy. And there's no question whatsoever that we have abundant ways, solar power, nuclear power, what have you, by which we could make deep cuts in emissions. And what's missing is the political will to do it. So that's the central thing to do. But no problem as complex as climate change is solved by any single action. As you know, even if you eliminate emissions, you don't make the problem go away. You basically just stop it getting worse. Carbon removal can take CO2 out of the atmosphere. So it can reduce that. But carbon removal is inherently slow. So you actually have to deal with all the amount of carbon. It has its own, and in some cases, pretty significant large-scale environmental impacts. And I think of carbon removal as mostly something that will allow us to gradually pull down the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere after we've done the decarbonization effort. Of course, there's some handoff in the middle between the two. So if you think that with a combination of emissions cuts and carbon removal, there's some curve, some curve of CO2 concentration, which is more or less proportional climate risk versus time, a curve that now is still going up and will peak and then will gradually come back down. The way I think about solar geoengineering is it is used to flatten that curve. It's used to reduce climate risks at the peak. So a consequence of that is you want to start it well before the peak. This is not something you use as an emergency measure. Suddenly all everything's going wrong, you hit the red button. In fact, I don't think it's very useful for that. I think it's something that you want to do well before the peak, building it up slowly so you can watch and learn as you go and look for the unexpected, which will certainly occur and adjust what you're doing because no plan is ever correct from the beginning do it is a sort of a wedge that builds up to the peak, and the, the day of peak CO2 concentrations is also roughly should be the day of peak solar geoengineering, and then it gradually ramps down. And the net effect then is it's a combination of emissions cuts, solar geoengineering, carbon removal, and of course, local adaptation that are the things that collectively manage climate risk.
0: So I know a lot of the timelines then depend on how quickly we hit net zero emissions, but if you had to ballpark, I guess, about how many years do you see geoengineering on the way up, and then I guess it would it be about that same amount of time on the way down?
1: The answer is, I'll be dead and you'll be dead. It doesn't really matter much what we think. I don't think he going to be back listening to this podcast. I think you important. can
0: say whatever you want because no, there's no, 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 no accountability. No, but no, 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 I think joking. that's the point. Yeah, <laughs> I
1: think it's important to have some humility. That fundamentally, everybody likes to make these plans for a hundred or thousand years, and I do think it's important to talk about it. But the thing that really matters is that people like you and me and listeners and many other humans around the world will shape what we do in the next decade or something, and then we'll learn and we'll rethink. (laughs) And a lot of what we did will be wrong. So I'm happy to answer that question, but I think the real issue here is do we have a serious research program? And just to make the the strongest case I can make for that, the point is a variety of people, including I'm sure of you listeners, will have a big range of views about whether solar generation can ever be deployed in a politically stable way and about how risky it will end up being technically. And I've got my views too. The truth is the group of us probably listening, your listeners and me are not mostly the ones who are going to make this decision. This decision really gets made kind of a generation later about deployment. And my view is that the decision we make now is basically, do we have a serious research program or not? And if we decide not to have a research program, which is kind of the current decision, we have a tiny little bit, but there's no serious effort, then we're just giving our kids less information to make the decision. We can't take away their ability to do it because the underlying ability to actually do this is already here. You don't need any new research on solar regulation to deploy it. That's the frightening thing. You could just go do it now. I think that that I view research as providing information that gives people more chance to make less stupid decisions. That doesn't mean I think people will make some smart, optimal decision, people never do. That doesn't make it mean that I think everything will go in some way that it looks like in these beautiful models with smooth curves. But I think people do make better decisions in general if they have more information. So we may well find out that some of the methods we thought were good were a lot riskier than we thought and they'll get abandoned. That's already happened in lots of parts of geoengineering. And we may find out that the politics of doing this is easier than we thought or harder. But I think we'll make better decisions if we take it out of the closet. I think people make very bad decisions when they're taboos we can't talk about. Because the, the fact that it's taboo doesn't mean it won't happen. So that's my case for having it out of the closet, having a serious open access international search effort. And that's what I'm primarily spending my time fighting for. That's a long-winded answer. The question that got this started was, will the the come down on the other side of the peak be slower? Well, that depends on how expensive carbon removal is in 2075. You know the honest truth? I can give you an opinion, but I don't think my opinion is worth anything. Because I've looked at how good, mean, I've published papers on this, at how good technology forecasters were for energy and environmental technologies who were forecasting stuff in 1970 about the year 2000. And the answer is they were pretty lousy. There's just not much skill there. So I can tell you that I think that a come down will be slower because I think carbon removal will be possible, but relatively hard, and we won't drive it down really fast. But
0: I don't think it really matters what I say, and I don't have really any confidence in my judgment. What do the big fossil fuel companies think about solar geoengineering? That's a good question,
1: which in practice means what do a few senior people like the environmental VPs or whatever those companies think? And I think the answer is most of them have at least had some conversations about it. My guess is they would love it if it was happening more because they could use it as a at least rhetorical tool to reduce the pressure of climate regulation. So to be clear, we need to do much more to regulate regulate to drive fossil emissions down. And that means to regulate those companies out of existence. So of course, their viewpoint is that if they could use this as a way to say, hey, we've got this, get out of jail free, they'd want to do that. I also think they're smart enough to mostly know that if they publicly are seen to be driving it or supporting it, that kind of takes away the value of the get-out-of-geo-free card. So my guess is a guess is that they're probably indirectly kind of happy that some of this research is happening, but they're really not involved.
0: I think that's one concern that comes to mind, and it's not a scientific concern. It's a human psychology concern or a, or a self-interested capitalism concern where if solar geoengineering is meant to manage that peak emissions risk, Right that the timeline to peak emissions gets extended because people know that this is here and see it as a license to keep right on emitting?
1: Of course. So that's the central concern that is often called the moral hazard. And I think it is the underlying reason why this has been a taboo. And it's the reason that underlies most of the folks who say we shouldn't do this. So there are lots of people sort of elite in the climate science and policy world who may say that there shouldn't work on this because it's very risky. But mostly, if you really talk with them, the the underlying reason they think we shouldn't deal with this is they think no matter how well it works, that it'll get misused and allow people just to keep admitting in the future. And so this is really a fear about addiction and a fear about political misuse in the future. So I guess a couple things. In in some deep way, I think it's legitimate, I mean, no question. I think I've been one of the people to raise that fear, I think, first. I think was the first one to actually use moral hazard in a formal article about this. And I believe it is a serious fear. And my near-term thing that I think we should do is that the community working on this should do their very best to be allied with those who want to cut emissions, should not take money from the fossil fuel industry, and should, as much as possible, divide itself clearly from that and be unequivocally clear that solar geoengineering cannot substitute for cutting emissions, that the very best thing you can say about it is that a combination of emissions cuts and solar geoengineering might allow less climate risk than cutting emissions alone. That's the the strongest statement you can make. But there's no question that even with solar geoengineering, long-term risk is proportional to cumulative emissions, so we have to stop. Thinking a little more pragmatically about the ethics of that, I think the leap For those who say we really that this implies we shouldn't research solar geoengineering, I think, for me anyway, is hard to defend ethically. Because remember, there are different people making decisions at different times. And so an argument that says we really should not allow this technology out of the closet because we're worried that it'll get misused sounds a lot like an argument by a kind of ultra-wise elite who thinks that they know the right answer and that lay people can't get access to it. And that's a pretty ugly thought. It also sounds a little bit to me like people who argued that we shouldn't allow airbags in cars because it would encourage people to drive faster. And There were serious arguments and papers published and so on about that. That's a good analogy. Yeah, or arguments that we shouldn't allow that when the AIDS three-drug cocktail really became effective, there were people who argued that inevitably it would be misused and create a, a resistance in Africa, and so we shouldn't allow those less competent people access to it. And I mean, I think in hindsight, that's like an extremely racist and bizarre argument. I think there are a myriad ways in which we might wish people will act, but I guess coming back for it, the idea that you would withhold a risk-reducing technology because you are worried that people will make decisions to take on a little bit more risk is a worry that comes up a lot, but it's hard to defend actually withholding the risk-reducing technology because you're going to really hold that ethic, you got to think about what is the ethical argument and how does that argument roll?
0: I have two final questions for you. One is just, you talked about the need for an exponentially larger research budget, and so... Let's say exponential. Now that's a Silicon Valley term. I actually did not <laughs> use that word because that's
1: just like the Silicon Valley, it all has to be exponential and then <laughs> and there has to be a value proposition and we only want businesses that are these exponential businesses that just basically fuck people by creaming the crop. That is such the Silicon Valley word. That is absolutely not what I said or what I think. Okay. Um, <laughs> sorry, I know there's a bunch of Silicon Valley lit people probably
0: listening to this, but wow. Okay, so let's say <laughs> bigger. And- 20x bigger, right? 20x bigger. So all kinds of other sexy buzzwords I could put around that. But if that budget was here today and you could wave your magic wand and have it allocated in a way that would be most impactful to accelerating solar geoengineering research in the ways that it needs to be, you know, the proper ways, where do you put it? How do you allocate that funding? It's all
1: buried in proper. But I can say I would allocate it to funding that seems most likely to produce the largest benefits- for most people, especially produce benefits that come most to the poorest and the most risk to climate change, and to be least likely to be unequal, least likely to produce harms. So in a sense, a minimax principle, we should aim to develop methods of doing this that produce the least harm to those who are most impacted. And then separately, I think there's a principle that says we should develop technologies that are least amenable to political misuse, So the point is, geoengineering isn't a thing. This isn't science. This is technology development. And we have choices about how we develop that technology. So I said that in very general terms. Let me give you some specific examples of things I would and would not develop. So I would not put zero effort into, but I would put significantly less effort into things that are inherently local and have fast time constants. So cirrus cloud thinning and marine cloud brightening both have the underlying time constant of the response is only hours. That is, put in the aerosols and the effect lasts for hours. That has some profound consequences. It means that if you really did either of those at the scale to provide a substantial large-scale climate benefit, so a scale of, say, a water two per square meter, it means that you've basically bought yourself significant weather control because it means you can manipulate those things in fast frequency and use feed-forward in a climate model and do weather control. It also makes the termination shock problem, much more unstable because you can turn the thing off in a day, whereas other methods turn off over years. And it inherently is patchy. So it has this winner and loser piece built into it. So I wouldn't put zero effort into those things because I think, first of all, there's big climate co-benefits and there's ways in which they certainly could, in addition to other methods, be useful. And also we don't know, we might be wrong, but I do think that those have more capacity to look more like weapons or look more disruptive. And so I think there's more chance of political misuse and some evidence that they might have bigger environmental side effects. So I would put most of my effort into stratospheric aerosols, looking for ones that could have less impact and looking for ways that you could have as much as possible transparency in who gets access to data and in the methods for getting access to data. And it would put a little bit of effort into these space-based systems, which I think are almost certainly irrelevant for the initial deployment in the first decade or two, but later in the century are actually plausible things that humans could do and have some advantages.
0: My last question is just, there's there's two different audiences I'd love for you to address with some advice. One audience is people that might be listening and saying, I'm up the learning curve and I want this research to happen. And what can I do with my time or my dollars that can be most impactful for that research? And then the second audience is people that say, wow, I really didn't know too much about this, but it's intriguing and at least warrants me getting up to speed more. And for those people, it'd be great to talk about where those people should dig in to to become more educated on the topic.
1: For that first group, for people who have dollars and or political energy, I think the biggest thing we need is to broaden this conversation, which isn't about money, but it's about getting a larger suite of people to really engage with this topic. I think a big thing about the geoengineering debate is a lot of people come to it with some preconception and certainty about what it is, and when they dig in, they find it's not quite what they thought. And I think if we want to make good decisions, we need to have the conversations. So, and some of your listeners can affect that. I do think there is room for philanthropic funding and very much room for government funding. So I think we need more serious government funding of this. And in the end, a democracy I think is really important that a core of this be funded through government. Because that gives some democratic control over what happens. So I think people can influence that through the normal tools of political influence, some of which involve money to buy lobbyists or to buy the beginning of social ventures that try and to promote it. I think direct funding for philanthropic science funding, I think is really important. There's a long history of philanthropic funding of science, of some things that were thought to be socially questionable but ended up being really useful, birth control. <laughs> and I think there are good arguments for doing it, but it has to be done in a way that's open and where there's transparency and real checks and balances. And I think there's a very large scope for both, for growing a serious government effort and for growing philanthropic efforts of different kinds. Our effort at Harvard, which you haven't asked about directly, but it's sort of prototypical, has been almost entirely philanthropically funded. Our idea was to raise 20 million of, of funding over uh, to be spent over seven years. And I think we'll get there. where it's at 16 and a half or, or so now. And My hope would there be like 10 other programs like that. I don't actually think our program should get much bigger because I think it's important to have kind of these things be balanced. But I'd like to see similar programs at a bunch of universities around the world and not just in the rich world because there are people at IIT Delhi who have a great program, for example, who could use more funding for it. Then for the second category of people... Well, for people who want to dig in, one thing I'm happy to do is just give you a whole bunch of links. I don't know if you post them to your podcast, but I I can definitely do that. I think Oliver Morton's book, The Planet Remade, there's a couple other books. I wrote a book which is much less good prose, but at least is short. It's called A Case for Climate Engineering. There's several other books. There's probably like a total of five books been published. There's a nice one recently by Jesse Reynolds on governance. So there's now quite a few different books. There's a, a book by Holly Buck, a big range of them. There are... Lots of good reports, sort of reports from the National Academy of the U.S. The UK Royal Society had an early report. If you want kind of consensus science reports, there have been some very good things, like there was a debate. I was part of an IQ Square debate, so that gives people a sense of like a real pro and con back and forth, what happens if you have a formal debate. There's been a lot of really thoughtful, long-form press articles. I'm happy to point you to some of those and op-eds and so on, so...
0: That'd be great. Yeah, yeah. yeah maybe, maybe offline. Uh, if you want to send me some links, I'll I'll put them in the in the episode show that notes. great. Sure. All right. Anything I didn't ask you that I should over? Any parting words for listeners? Yeah. Good question. I mean, maybe like so. Yeah. What do you think? I might be missing. Gosh, I think this was pretty pretty comprehensive. I mean, we're not going to cover it all in one in one episode, but I think I think that just does a good job of getting people up the learning curve, making them think, giving them some some resource if they want to learn more, and giving them some some places for action if they want to help.
1: Let me try and give you an example of why just doing climate models isn't enough and why some kinds of experiments are really crucial to allow us to understand better how these things could work. And those experiments could happen at scales that are much too small to have any significant environmental. So almost for certain, if humans are actually going to do stratospheric aerosol solar geoengineering, it's going to be released from aircraft. And that's true whether you're putting diamond powder in the stratosphere, or calcium carbonate, or sulfuric acid, or SO2, which turns into sulfuric acid. For all those things, you've got to do it from an aircraft, and aircraft make these really long, thin trails in the stratosphere. And the stratosphere is stratified. Things don't mix much. There's not much diffusion. Things move around like smoke in an old, smoke-filled room. So for example, we know the- that Newman, for example, on a ER-2 mission, a NASA U-2, they intercepted a Soviet rocket plume 12 days after that rocket plume, and it was still a coherent plume. So we know these things stay coherent in narrow filaments in the stratosphere for a long time. So basically all climate models, including all the published models of sulfate aerosols in the stratosphere, use these huge grid boxes in which everything is perfectly mixed. We know those will not get the right answer for what happens in that first few weeks as that plume spreads out. I think climate models do a pretty decent job once things are well mixed. But the dynamics between the initial plume injection And that point where it's well mixed in a month, that dynamic has this profound impact through shaping the aerosol size distribution, which in turn is really important for how the whole thing works. So no amount of conventional climate modeling will get that right because the models just don't see those plumes. So that's an example where you need two things. You need new model development that builds a kind of integrated plume model into the models. We're actually trying to do that. That's kind of like a person year or two of work, and we'll get it done. Eventually, it'll get into a climate model, a few more person years of work. But our plume model needs to get validated. We need actual evidence about how these aerosols actually work. And to do that, you need to get an aircraft in the stratosphere. It needs to release a plume of those materials over, say, 30 or 100 kilometers. So you've got the long length. And they need to fly back and forth through that plume and observe it. That is completely doable with existing technologies. So you could take the NASA ER-2 or WB-57. And if you had authority and the right science team, you could, that experiment could be done a year from now. Right now, it's completely no near-term possibility of doing that. But I would say doing that would release far too little sulfur to have any big impact. We're talking about doing that if it was sulfur with a half a ton or something of material. But that would tell you a huge amount about how these things actually worked. And without doing those experiments, you cannot trust the large-scale models. So that's a clear example of where specific kinds of doable science could greatly improve our knowledge but the reality of those kind of experiments is they take a lot of time, take a lot of planning. you got to develop instruments and grad students and teams of people. And that can not all happen at once. So if you want to have that information 15 years from now, you need to, you should have started 10 years ago, but you need to start now. You need to start a bunch of those experiments really pretty soon because some experiments, you get stuff wrong. Each experiment opens up new holes. But if we don't start those, we will not have decent models, because experiments just improve our models. We will not have decent models that allow us to make sensible decisions about how this could work.
0: I think that's a great place to end because it's illustrative of not only the fact that we need research, but really getting to a a good real world example of why. And that research is completely doable
1: by agencies like NASA, by combinations. We're doing a very tiny early version of it here called Scopex, or we, we want to do But that is the kind of thing that needs to get done. And it's completely inside the mainstream of normal tools of stratospheric and kind of broadly aerosol and climate science. But we need to turn those tools on. And if we don't, we simply will not learn.
0: David, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thanks very much. It was a pleasure.
0: Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on My Climate Journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.com dot c o no that is dot c o not dot com someday we'll get the dot com but right now dot c o you can also find me on twitter at jjacobs 22 where i would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear and before i let you go if you enjoyed the show please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on itunes the lawyers made me say that thank you